Sego Sewa Guego. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to our Yohate Negasuna, the Road to Your Name podcast, focusing on Haudenosaunee cultural topics recorded on Haudenosaunee territory in the summer and fall of 2020. These podcasts are produced by Aboriginal Legal Services. My name is Lisa Venevri from the Mohawk Nation and Wolf Clan. I'm the coordinator of the Yohate Negasuna Road to Your Name program. Welcome to the Yohate Negasuna podcast series. If you would like to learn more about our organization, Aboriginal Legal Services, and the programs and services we provide, please visit us at our website, www.aboriginallegal.ca. And if you feel inclined and would like to make a donation, you can click on the word donate, located on the bottom of the page of our website. You can also visit us on Facebook at Aboriginal Legal Services, Toronto, Canada. Welcome to today's podcast, Road to Your Name. Today's guest is Peter Schuler, and um, we're going to be talking about whatever Peter wants to talk about today. <laughs> He'll let us know. Um, but we'll try to talk about some um, information on the Indigenous Peoples Court and how we're bringing culture into the court to help our clients that are there going through the justice system and talk a little bit about the Indigenous Peoples Court in Brantford that's been in existence since 2014. Welcome, Peter. So um, in that tiny, tiny Mungietgo, bit of language that I have, I gave you my name, my clan, and I said that I live on Six Nations and uh, New Credit. Um, and um, so um, in talking about the uh, Indigenous Peoples Court, uh, I think it was about 2016, I think, somewhere in there, that I was asked to uh, sit as a knowledge holder uh, for that uh, Brantford IPC court. And um, at that time, I really didn't understand or know that much about uh, IPC court or any court for that matter. And um, as uh, I went through the indoctrination of how to do what we're going to do and what we're going to do, um, I went to um, the court in my turn and sat and listened and I got a better understanding of the court system and um, prior to this podcast uh, Lisa graciously made us lunch trying to get us fat <laughs> at least fluffy and um, and she mentioned about IPC court and uh, the two streams of justice the uh, the indigenous justice system and the um, Western justice system. And the first thought that came to my mind as a difference is that the Western justice system is an extractive system where it is uh, based on uh, ownership, um, 
is based on um, the perpetuation of the theft of lands in Turtle Island or on Turtle Island. And um, that's not something that I believe is recognized um, by a lot of people. But when you start looking at treaties that were made where we agreed to um, uh, share the land, not give it up, but share it. And they agreed to uh, allow us to retain our hunting rights and uh, gathering rights and those things. Um, that was the understanding that my ancestors had with the uh, colonial governments, was that we were going to share and that we would retain our hunting fishing rights and we weren't giving up the water. Um, and so when you come into following history along, uh, the first thing that they did when they divided up the land and um, the settlers came and they got their portion of land, then it became all about ownership of the land, not sharing the land, but ownership. And then when we went to exercise our hunting and fishing rights, we became trespassers on our hunting lands and uh, gathering grounds. And um, so there's two different, completely different ways of looking at the, the land. And in our way of looking at it, you can't own the land. It's, 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 it's uh, would it be to us as preposterous an idea as it would be today if I said I want to own all the air. And the same thing applied to the water. And um, so when we have, uh, today we have these um, water companies, Nestle's and those companies coming along and they're, they're buying up water rights. And essentially they're buying something from the government that we never surrendered. And in a matter of fact, there is written records where the British says, we don't want your water. They weren't interested in the water. But now if we try to say, hey, that water is ours and we protest or um, try to acknowledge the fact that we never gave up the water, then we become criminals. We become uh, terrorists. We become all these things. And a case in point right now in the Caledonia, we have uh, people protesting the development of land <clears throat> and lands that were uh, taken illegally by 100-year leases. And when the leases were up, they never uh, renewed the lease. They never um, paid more on the lease. They simply just took the land. And so successive governments have protected the original theft of that land. And their argument has always been that we made improvements. And therefore, and there are people sitting on that land and therefore we can't give it back. And uh, so that's the Western stream of... Uh, of justice 
And my argument would be, where is the improvement? Where are the deer? Where are the bears? Where are all the plants? Where are all the trees? And where is the clean water? My argument would be that you didn't make any improvements. You destroyed what you took. And not only that, you refused to give it back. And if I was to go to General Motors and lease a car for five years, and every year I put a, uh, uh, a coat of solid gold paint on that car for five years, and at the end of my five-year lease, if I said, I'm not giving you this car back because I've made improvements, look at all the gold paint I put on it, their argument would be, your lease is up. And if I didn't give it back, they would come, they would tow it away, and they would charge me with theft, and I would end up in jail. And so there's not much difference between that story and the theft of the land. And when you look at the history of the Indian Act, you will find that they made provisions in the law that it, <clears throat> it was uh, to limit us in arguing and trying to get that land back. They made it, made it illegal for lawyers to represent Indians. They made it illegal for Indians to file land claims. And that was that way for a long time. And eventually when they changed the law, well, as a matter of fact, it was illegal for an uh, Indian to become a lawyer because if he became a lawyer, then he ceased to be an Indian. And then when he ceased to be an Indian, he couldn't represent us, his own people couldn't even represent himself as a Indian. He had to represent himself as a white person. And uh, so that's the, the, the part of the law, the Western law, that we face. And when you sit in the court as a knowledge helper, and you have this little bit of knowledge, and I guess they say a little bit of knowledge is dangerous. But when you have that little bit of knowledge of the history of the court system that you're sitting in, and then you see someone come into court and they're charged with hunting out of season, you're sitting there watching the Western court system, the... Uh, criminalize someone who is exercising his treaty rights. And as a knowledge holder, you're expected to uh, uphold the Western system, which is something that I uh, have a hard time doing. And if, if that comes to in the courtroom, um, I would be bringing that up about how that system is wrong. And the judge, um, him or her, is, is put on a, a, a bad spot because they have to defend that Western justice system as well. And the only way around that is for them to uh, use whatever uh, leeway they have within the law to try to make it fair. Um, the best result would be if the law got changed and, um, and the, that our system uh, our treaty rights were respected.
this is my hope, but I think that anything in law changes really, really slowly. And those in power are not willing to give up uh, those things that they've stolen. And they will argue, it wasn't me who stole that. And, um, and I feel bad for that person who's sitting on that land, uh, thinking that they own it outright and not knowing the history of the lands that they're sitting on and that the lands were stolen in the first place. I have sympathies for them, but when it comes for them to get angry at us for trying to get back what was stolen from us, I say they should direct their anger at the government because it is the government that perpetuated this crime and allowed it to happen and protects the crime from being resolved. And they do that because they don't want to lose votes. They don't want to give something back because when they give something back, they have to admit they did something wrong. And we can see from uh, the apology that was given to those people who went to residential schools, when uh, Harper made that apology, and he had to read that apology to me, the apology means nothing more than a box he had to check off that day as a thing being done. If I do you wrong myself and I come to apologize, I'm not going to be reading it. It has to come from your heart and you have to mean it. It can't be something that's drafted for you to read. And otherwise you're not really apologizing. And um, so when it comes to uh, Indigenous Peoples Court, what I see is an attempt by the courts to rectify some of the things that have gone on for quite some time. It's an it's a effort to uh, recognize institutionalized racism. Um, it's an effort to uh, try to make some adjustment uh, for the effects of residential school. Um, and all of those kinds of things that uh, the government has done against our people. And when I say the government, I say the government. I don't mention one party or another because to me there's two constants. There's the government and there's us. And their stated goal in the beginning was to get rid of the Indian problem. Their stated goal was to assimilate, assimilate us so that we no longer existed. And that is a constant. And we are a constant because we're still here. And we don't have any intention of going anywhere. And, you know, it's, it's something that um, I believe very strongly in is that we should try to get back as much as we can 
by way of culture, language, uh, indigenous knowledge, and ways of being. And, and I believe that every indigenous person should try to regain as much as possible uh, from their ancestors' knowledge. And the deepest well of knowledge is the true understanding of your language. Not just the English translation, but what did the words really mean? And because ours is an oral history, um, the words that we use have very, very vastly different meanings in our language than they do in English. And it took me a long time to understand this because I was not raised with my language. But when I began to uh, try to learn that language, and when I began to go to our own ceremonies, the elders always said, it's all in the language. And at first I didn't understand what they were saying, but encoded in the language is the knowledge of your ancestors. But you have to know the true meanings of the words. And you have to seek out the oldest language that you can find. And there is a uh, hourglass and the sand is running out. And we have to um, gather up that sand and start pouring it back in the top. Otherwise, all of this knowledge will disappear. And I believe at this time in the world, the indigenous knowledge is invaluable. And I'm not just talking about the indigenous knowledge from North America. I'm talking about from around the world. And um, we have an opportunity to uh, spread this. We have an opportunity to talk about it. We have an opportunity to write about it. And we have an opportunity to um, look at this court system and try to make change so that it's justice. Not justice, not just us, but justice. And the way it is now, I call it the just us system, because it doesn't leave room for anyone else other than the ones in power. And um, it all, and the judges that sit in that court, um, have a big responsibility to try to steer the ship a little bit back to the center. And it's not an easy task. And especially when we don't even know our own justice system. And our own justice system uh, starts with natural law. And we have an obligation to the rest of creation, to uphold natural law. And when you break natural law, the natural law police don't come running out of the woodwork with all their uh, sirens blaring and all that kind of stuff. But you do have to pay. And it might not be you who has to pay, it might be your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren. If you go down and cut all the trees, 
you can enjoy the living you made from that. You can build a fine house. You can do all kinds of things. But in the generation that follows, there's no trees to sit under. There's erosion. There's less animals. And it goes on and on like that for each generation. And the more natural law you break, the greater the price and the further down the, the pipe that, that affects people. And we are seeing that today with climate change, with the current pandemic. We are seeing the results of breaking natural law. And there is no uh, courtroom for that. There is a judge, but there's no courtroom. And you can define that judge in any way you want. And I'm not even going to try to define that because that's something I don't need to know. I don't have to know who's in charge, except that I know it's not me. And uh, I'm only in charge of my own actions. And uh, so when you break natural law, if you become aware that you're guilty, you can try to make amends. You can go plant trees. You can go and uh, do those things that might help the environment come back in the balance. But I think when it comes to the court system, and we are seeing the results of breaking natural law, when it comes down to the humans that tried to prevent that, you find us, the indigenous people, the ones who stood up against all of that are the ones who are suffering the most from the breaking of that natural law. And when we try to make amends and we try to uh, um, prevent further breaking of that natural law, we become the criminals who are standing up in front of the pipelines. We become the criminals who are standing up in front of bulldozers who are going to cut down the trees that are going to open up the mines and pollute the waters. We become those criminals. And there are people in this world, that young uh, Greta Thunberg, who is not an indigenous person, at least not to this part of the world, who sees this and calls out the Western justice system. And she gets all kinds of attention. And she raises the alarm. And yet, up north there, there's a young woman, I think her last name is Peltier, who did the same thing. But you don't hear about her. Even though those two met and talked and they even appeared a couple of times, I think, in public together. Um, so that is the um, another example of the justice system and how one is uh, admired 
well, sometimes admired in, in other quarters, not admired at all, but for the most part admired, and the other person is completely ignored when they stand up for the water. Um, so I think in uh, looking at these two justice systems, that we need to bring some kind of balance back. And part of the sitting in the IPC court as a knowledge holder um, in Brantford, at least, uh, is that we have a sentencing circle. And part of that court system is that person who's going to go through there has to plead guilty. And I'm not so sure that I agree with that because um, what happens if they're not guilty? Um, but at any rate, at the current time, they have to plead guilty. And so the key difference is that when they plead guilty and there is a sentencing circle, there is opportunity for a glad new, glad new letter or a glad new report to be prepared to help explain how did that person get to be where they're sitting. And, and it takes into account uh, the way the person was raised, affects their residential schools, and all that kind of stuff. And the part that I like best about this is that the judge, at the time of the sentencing circle, the judge comes off his bench and sits in a circle at the same level as everyone else. And an opportunity is given for everyone to introduce themselves. And then the judge wants to know this person's story who's sitting in that prisoner's box. And he wants to know, how did you get here? What happened? And there are people that can be invited to sit in that circle who may support that person. They might also not support that person, but they may, they're given the opportunity to come and sit there. And there's usually three go-arounds, and we usually have a feather, or you can have use a stocking stick or whatever you want to use, but whoever's got it is the one who's talking. Everyone else is listening. And there are usually three go-arounds. There's an introduction. There's the person's... Uh, uh, opportunity to tell their story, how they got where they're sitting. And there's an opportunity for other people to speak. And then the judge wants to know, how are you going to get out of this? What are you going to do to fix things? And the opportunity is given for that person to, to tell what they're doing, uh, whether if it's uh, a crime-based or caused by alcoholism or addiction, um, they might be able to say, I'm, I'm going to AA or I'm doing a program or whatever. And so the judge uh, has an opportunity to see what are they doing to resolve their issues. And if this was Western court, the judge would say, or here, I, I'm guilty, or here, you're found guilty. He would not hear anyone's story. He would just impose the sentence that's in that little book that says, you get so many points for this and so many points for that. And 
from what I can see and understand of the IPZ court, it's an opportunity for the person to resolve their issues and to make restitution if, if necessary and to uh, change the way they're doing. Because it's uh, key that when we see someone in that chair that we don't want to see them again, ever <laughs> again. And the only time we want to see them is when they come back into court and they report, yes, I'm doing uh, my program, yes, it's helping me, yes, I'm attending AAA, and yes, I have employment, etc. We want to see that that person is doing well. And from my observation, uh, every opportunity is given to that person to resolve their issues and become a better person within that system. And to me, this is closer to what I would call uh, in, an indigenous effort at law. That when someone uh, does a crime and offends another person, steals their property, whatever, it causes an imbalance. And so the in indigenous justice stream or system would be looking to restore the balance um, or imbalance that restore to balance the imbalance that was caused by this person's actions. And to me, this is a far more um, just system. And in the optimum, there would be an opportunity for the victim to be sitting in that circle and to voice their. Um, feelings, their uh, sense of harm or whatever uh, has caused them discomfort, injury. Um, and there would be opportunity for them to speak out. But I don't know whether we are, as a society, able to do that. There is a maturity that's required and able to do that in order ha for that to happen. There is a maturity that's required. And I think that our society has become very immature. And part of that is because of this Western law system that's been imposed on us. Because a long time ago, the goal was to restore balance. And the goal now with the Western system is to impose uh, punitive measures to see the person punished. And um, for the most part in the Western system, the restoring of balance doesn't even come into the picture. And. Uh, the model of the IPC court, I think, would benefit the whole court system if it was all like that. And I think that would cut down recidivism um, and it would improve society. Because if you look to the South in the United States, they have more of their own citizens in jail than any country in the world. And they are one of the most violent societies in, uh, if we call it, democratic 
countries. So that does not work, that punitive system. And I think that uh, if the goal was to restore balance, I think it would have a far better outcome. So I don't know if there's any more you want me to say <laughs> about that or not. <laughs> well, that was a lot to take in at one time, but really good words about a lot of different subjects and and um, you touched on you touched on what's happening with the land today and 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 how we're, how indigenous people are being criminalized and um, at the um, 1492 Landback Lane. I think we're up to over 30 people now have to go into the court system, some that have never been in the court system before um, because of um, them defending the land. And um, I did sit in um, the the injunction hearings and, and it was because I've sat in uh, courtrooms throughout the years and listen to judges talk about, um, you know, um, land issues sometimes. Sometimes um, we've had people come into the court at Brantford that have um, been land defenders before. And what I've noticed and what I noticed this past time is that the system is not capable of dealing with these issues. <laughs> fairly because they only know their side of the law and they don't care to know the other side that comes with this these actions right and so when you're when you have to deal with a situation and you only know one side it's very difficult to de have a just decision come from that and a fair decision so yeah, I with our work that we're doing in IPC, I've noticed a lot of things there too with the circles that we have, and and I I am optimistic sometimes. Are you not, Peter? Yes, I've I've seen, um, just in the circle itself, I've seen uh, balance start to be restored. Um, you know, and that's before any sentences happen. That's just from people sitting in that circle. And, um, you know, like, I don't want to get all hokey about this, but there's what you would call healing <laughs> that is happening. Mm -hmm. Where, um, you know, if you want to call it injustice a wound, that you can see... Um, that that wound is starting to heal just from the actions of the and the words of the people that are sitting in that circle mm -hmm. where people you know maybe uh realize what they did wrong and and offer some um words to the court that they they are acknowledging that they made a mistake that perhaps they're they have remorse or uh those kind of things and um, you know the the person that um, committed the crime, in many instances, is a person that's been hurt themselves, and um, they act out, and they um, 
um, basically aren't healthy as a human being. And, um, and it's like this current uh, pandemic we're in, that can be contagious and it passes on. You get angry at somebody, you have a fight. Well, both of you get charged for whatever, unorderly conduct or whatever. So you both end up in the court. Or, you know, you, uh, you uh, are drinking and driving because you're mad at somebody or whatever, and you hit another car, and the other person ends up in court as a, as a victim. And, um, you know, and sometimes if that person who's the victim is in the court and hears your side of the story, they might change their uh, view of what happened. They still, you know, got in an accident, but they might begin to understand why that happened. And, um, you know, um, I'm optimistic of change, but I'm not optimistic of how fast it's going to happen. Oh, it's been really <laughs> slow. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> It's been slow. Um, yeah, the circles are definitely very powerful that we do in Indigenous People's Court. In addition to healing that we can see happen sometimes, what I also see is I see understanding being brought to the court and offered. And, and I see it being received as well by the people, like the judges and the crowns and the defense. I see them really beginning to understand where we're coming from and what what has happened to us and the real the real raw results of it of it as we as we sit there and we talk about our lives and and I think that's been really good over the years for the court to hear these types of things because ordinarily they've only read things on a piece of paper about us, you know, and they don't know the, the whole story. Um, so, so those are the types of things that are happening in IPC. And I also see the bond with, with bringing the indigenous knowledge helpers like yourself into the court. I see the bond that the judicial, that, begins to form that with you and how you know some they rely on you to um let them know things to make them aware of things whether it's an indigenous teaching of some of some kind that's relevant to what we're talking about or or the stories that are told within the circles um i see those types of things happening too and I really like listening to teachings when they organically happen in the circle. Well, that's something that um, uh, I try to I try to do every day is to um, um, light a small fire in my wood stove and offer my tobacco into that fire and give thanks for the day and to ask for words to come to help our people, and, and most importantly though, to help Nindui uh, Magnaduk, our relatives, which is is um, uh, looking after that natural law, to uh, look after 
um, the environment, the the things that sustain us as human beings, and to have respect for uh, non-human life, and that's really uh, big in the indigenous justice uh, system. Is is that we're not the only beings on the planet, and the other ones are are more important than we are, because mm-hmm. without them, we can't be here. Mm-hmm. If there's no no trees. We don't have any oxygen. If there's no water, you're going to die of thirst. If the water is poison, you're going to get sick. And it goes on and on. This is a fundamental thing. And, uh, you know, like, um, if you look at greed, greed gets you to jump over a whole bunch of... Uh, things you shouldn't be jumping over. It's like if you watch those uh, Black Friday store openings where you see people jumping over top of each other, pushing each other out of the way and all that kind of stuff to get the biggest TV or whatever for half price. Um, that's that's, that's uh, uh, living visualization of greed. And greed uh, impels you to do those kind of things. And so you skip the steps you're supposed to take to get what you need. And you try to get more than you need. And, you know, you, you just keep grabbing and grabbing and grabbing, even after you've had way more than what you need. You just keep on grabbing it. And, um, you know, we're all guilty of that. We don't even know what greed is anymore. And and we, we give greed all kinds of names to make it look good. We call it ambition. We call it smarts. We call it drive. We call it all kinds of things. But when you see two people living in a 6,000 square foot house, we don't say they're greedy because we don't recognize what greed is. And, you know, um, I look at um, fresh strawberries. Fresh strawberries should only be here once a year. And when you have strawberries after that, they should be frozen, dried, canned, in the form of jam or whatever. And that once a year, you should really be looking forward to that time when you can have a fresh strawberry. But we don't do that. We want fresh strawberries whenever we want them, every day. And we break that natural law by flying those strawberries all over the world just to satisfy our greed. And we call that progress. We call that innovation but we don't call it greed. And I think that recognizing that we are greedy, that we are breaking natural law when we do all these things, and we are paying for that by climate change. We're paying for that. And people are paying for that, that work in those fields 
those ones who are um, working there in California, in Florida, the immigrant workers who are working there for substandard wages, who are working there handling pesticides and whatnot that make them sick. And they can't complain because they're illegal and they might get thrown out. That's greed. That's what we're imposing on them, just so we can have a fresh strawberry whenever we want it. And um, so this indigenous law versus Western law is a really, really big subject. And it takes a lot of thinking to really look at it. And, um, you know, like it's, it's all tied into our ceremonies. It's tied into our ways of being. Um, and, it's, and it's really, really a deep-rooted thing. If you follow that indigenous law, um, their roots go everywhere. And, you know, when I look at European or Western culture, I, I have to ask myself, where is it? What is it rooted in? And in North America, it's rooted in genocide, theft, and all kinds of things like that. And so I say to myself, where is their culture? And what is it? And myself, this was what was tried to be imposed on us and has been imposed on us. But I would rather try and relearn or seek out my ancestors' culture than get immersed in this so-called culture that we have, because it is the culture of greed. Yeah, I really think that we, we need to um, look at things like that in our, in our own lives especially. Where can we get better? at our actions and our and our thoughts and um you know but a i see a glimmer of hope in having you and the and the other indigenous knowledge helpers within the court because at least there the court can listen to these these teachings and and they're made aware of these things that and someone once told me when you become aware of something you can't become unaware of it it doesn't go backwards. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're out of time today, Peter. So I want to thank Peter Schuler for joining me at um, the Road to Your Name Yohate Negasuna podcast. And it's been a pleasure working with Peter in the Indigenous Courts. I hope we get back to the Indigenous People's Court soon. Got one more thing to say. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I always got one more thing to say. <laughs> I'm like the I'm like the the um, the the last word you hear from uh, a woman in an argument is uh, it's usually the last few words you hear. And one more thing. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I'm kind of like that. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. Um, what I wanted to say is, uh, you know, I am not a perfect person by any stretch of the imagination. And I do uh, things that sometimes leave people scratching their heads and sometimes me leaving me scratching my head. But the goal, I think, is um, that none of us are going to be perfect and uh, that we should try to uh, not be perfect, but try to get better uh, all the time. 
And, and we're always going to be learning. I don't care if you're 99, you're still going to be learning. You can never learn everything. And especially when it comes to our culture, um, you would have to be really, 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 really smart. And even if you were fully fluent and you started when you were two years old, I don't think you can learn at all. So I'll leave it at that. So chi miigwech. Okay, nyawe, Peter. And, and um, it's been a pleasure talking with Peter today and listening and learning. And also, um, um, it's been it's been a real a real eye opener to me to hear these things again because once you hear them it kind of makes you think oh i haven't thought about that in a long time i haven't thought about um greed for instance in a long time or um the trees right i'm gonna go out there and i'm <laughs> gonna appreciate that tree i see now out there today so nyawe to peter and we'll be back again with another episode of yohate negosuna the road to your name podcast nyawe Yahweh for listening to the Yohate Negasuna Road to Your Name podcast, which has been produced by Aboriginal Legal Services and hosted by me, Lisa Venevri. There are 10 episodes in this podcast series. Let's meet again on the next episode. This has been the Yohate Negasuna podcast series. If you would like to learn more about our organization, Aboriginal Legal Services, and the programs and services we provide, please visit us at our website, www.aboriginallegal.ca. And if you feel inclined and would like to make a donation, you can click on the word donate located on the bottom of the page of our website. You can also visit us on Facebook at Aboriginal Legal Services, Toronto, Canada.